everything good takes time. And I know that's not something you want to hear, especially if you're just getting in, right? You're just starting your dream goal. You're starting your dream job. But the truth is that it all takes time. Now, I'm not saying sit back and relax and, and wait for it. You still got to bust your ass and you still got to move like tomorrow could be the day. You still got to build for this stuff. But the truth of the matter in our business, in the film business, time is king. Experience is king. And uh, one of the things that helps me go to sleep at night is that you can be, at least in the American industry, you can be working in this business into way well into your 70s. So thank God for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if I get this movie cranking and I'm, I'm walking in in my 40s, I at least still have, as long as the meat doesn't kill me, I at least still have about 30 years. So that's good. Because everything takes time. You write an idea, you come up with an idea, you make a short film, five, six, seven years go by before you're pitching it as a feature. Uh, you write a script. Some scripts can be in development for 10 years. I mean, look at George Miller and Mad Max. Time. It all comes back to time. And it's the sad and crazy truth that oftentimes it's just waiting. It's this game of lo the long game of waiting and being prepared. And a lot of uh, directors and creatives counteract that by creating a bunch of different projects and having a bunch of different irons in the fire. Um, but it all still comes down to time. And then you finally get there, right? Like we've talked about in other episodes of the show, you finally get to that point where you're on set. And it's been eight years of waiting and prepping and pitching and pushing and hard labor. And now you're on set. Now you, now everything's got to go perfectly. Now it, now it has to become the definition of all that. It has to become the reason why you've been waiting this long that's stressful right and if you're somebody that has a, a real solid grasp on what your film's supposed to be if you have a real solid grasp on the visual language then power to you right you finally have that opportunity to flex your muscles and and put the theory to test but then there's a lot of filmmakers that don't and that's not necessarily a bad thing you know being a director that that doesn't understand how the visual language works. I mean, it, I would consider it a bit of a handicap, but it's not a bad thing because this business is about collaboration. This business is about working with people who know more than you do. And that's important. It's about having that, that humble vibe, you know, being able to sit there and go, I don't know. I need to hire someone because I don't know. And I would like to learn. Um, and I think with a lot of younger directors, that comes with working with a cinematographer. And I know that producers will put on specific cinematographers to comfort themselves, <laughs> uh, to make sure that somebody is running the ship that has done it before. Um, but there is sort of that awkward, you know, feeling, if, especially if you're a younger filmmaker, where it's like, can I trust an older cinematographer? Is this person going to come with all their own tricks that they they, they use? Are they going to come with the rhythms that they use? Are they going to listen to my ideas? Are they going to stomp over my stuff? That's, that's a general fear. 
that a lot of young filmmakers have when they work with older cinematographers. But I think that it's about just finding the right person. It's like dating. We've talked about this before, man. It's about, it's like dating. It's like speed dating. You go out on a couple dates and you find out if you guys click, you guys have the same things in common. If you guys uh, get along. Um, and then if you guys want to tell the same kind of stories, that's important, right? Um, and then oftentimes as a young director, you don't get access to the the amazing cinematographers that you've always wanted to work with because, you know, they they come with a bit of a price tag because they've had that time. They put in those hours. They put in that sweat equity. And they're like, look, this is what I need. This is the basis of what I need to do this stuff because I'm done doing these things. And that's not for all cinematographers. There's a lot of cinematographers that like to do a big movie and a small movie, a big movie and a small movie because it's two different vibes. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's all about getting that opportunity to sit down and talk with these talented men and women that have that time in, have that experience in. And that's what today's show is about. I'm really excited about today's show um, because we have uh, one of our premier guests on the show today. Uh, a gentleman that has over 40 years of experience in the movie industry. Uh, someone that got in at a very early age um, and has been making movies since 1979 which is, you know, nothing to nothing to scoff at there, man. That's amazing. And working through those systems, working through and helping develop uh, a lot of the visual language for stuff that we see today. And uh, it's fascinating because you're like, oh, okay, so this guy's going to be what? He's like 70s, so he's just doing some like art house movies or he's stuck in a style, he's stuck in a vibe, right? <laughs> It's the furthest thing from the truth. This cinematographer is creating some of the most beautiful, intense, action-oriented, romantic thriller horror pieces that are out in theaters today. I mean, this guy's doing amazing work, cutting-edge work. I mean, you guys have probably seen some of the stuff, right? A little movie called Crimson Peak. A little movie called Shape of Water. You want to go back in time? How about Mimic, right? Silent Hill is another one of his films. I just watched that the other night with Gina. Um, or maybe you're a John Wick fan. John Wick 2 and 3 are his movies as well. Um, and the latter... A uh, group of his films have been incredibly vibrant and colorful. Some of the most colorful movies I've ever seen. And the lighting and the contrast of lighting and the color contrast in the John Wick movies is just fucking astounding. Because it's like, when I watch those movies, whenever I watch action, I just assume that the entire process of this whole thing is capturing action. So please get your lights out of the way, get your shit out of the way, and let the actors fight each other and shoot it with as much coverage as possible. That's what common sense says when you're shooting that sort of thing. But when I watch John Wick, John Wick is such a sculpted film noir with this action. Wide shots, lit wide shots of exteriors in New York City that are comic book lit. 
It's insane. The lighting on John Wick stuff is fucking better than the lighting on any of the Marvel movies out there. Right? And you know it doesn't have Marvel movie budget. So how, how does that happen? That's one of the questions I want to ask today. Uh, I'm fucking excited, man. And I'm dropping in as many F-bombs as I can because I think this is the cleanest episode that I've ever done out of respect. Uh, and I don't think I swore once. And uh, he was dropping some F-bombs in there and I was just like, I couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> because I have such a respect for this gentleman. Um, and so I'm very excited um, to have Dan Lauston on the show. And uh, look him up. Check it out right now. IMDb it. I'm sure we'll have a link below. I'm sure Liam will hook you up. And just look at his stuff. Between stuff shot here and, and the U.S. and the stuff that he's done in Denmark. It's just amazing. And uh, very excited for this episode. I know you guys are too. I know you guys love the cinematographer episodes. Well, here you fucking go, man. <laughs> uh, we tried trying hard to book some really cool new people on the show. Uh, and this one was uh, was a Instagram book, man. I followed this guy and reached out to him. And he was so nice to reach back and be like, I'd love to do the show. So this is for you, all you guys out there that love cinematography. And I just want to say I appreciate the support that you guys have been giving the show. Uh, you've been telling your friends. You've been telling your family to listen. And you've been reaching out, which is perfect. I, You guys send me suggestions and do so. Is there someone that you want to hear on the show? Because I listen. That's how we got Brian Booth on the show. That was a suggestion from one of the listeners. So, And I don't know if his, his episode has been out yet because we're, we're reorganizing it. Might be out after this episode. I don't know what's going on. I just They sit me in front of a microphone. They make me talk. They feed me water every once in a while, and and that's it. That's what my life is right now. Um, but thank you for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy at Instagram or the podcast in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process P O D on Instagram. Uh, there you are seeing a bunch of like su supplemental material for the shows, uh, behind the scenes stuff on my personal account. A lot of the stuff that I'm working on right now. I'm doing prep for a movie, so. Uh, very excited with you guys coming there and checking it out. And I know there's a lot of new listeners on the show. And if you're looking at the queue on your Apple podcast, uh, lineup and you're like, Jesus, this is episode. What is this? 83 or 82, wherever the fuck we're at. Where do I start? Well, go to episode one, listen to that. And then go to in love with the process.com. There I've curated the episodes based upon the subject material. So if you want to just listen to directors, boom, I got a section for that. If you want to just listen to cinematographers, bam, I got a section for that. So we break it down, make it easy. There's no such thing as continuity on the show, but if you're someone that likes continuity, there's a lot of references that happen. So go start at the first and listen your way through. Um, all right. I don't want to delay this. This is such a great episode. Such a good honor to be able to sit down with this gentleman. And Dan is a sweetheart. So uh, you know the deal. For those of you who love great cinematography, for those of you who are uh, trying to learn your own version of the language of cinema, I think this would be an informative episode. We try to dig a little bit deeper 
than the American cinematographers out there. This is beyond the fluff. We, so we, we get into the nitty gritty on this show. Uh, so grab, grab a notebook, grab a pencil, get ready to take some notes, find those noise-canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Hello, Dan. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for bringing me in here. It's exciting. Yeah, no, I can't, like, I, I just have to say right up front, I'm a big fan of your work. I've been following your work for years. Oh, thank um, you so much. And it's just such a, it's such an honor that you'll just take the time and, uh, and talk on our little show. So I of really course, appreciate it. Of course, of course. It's my pleasure. <laughs> and we're also joined today by my producer, Liam, who might throw in a couple questions. Say hello, Liam. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastically. How are you? I'm good. It's so cold here in Copenhagen right now. It should be summer, but it's not. <laughs> That's right. We're, so what time is it there for you right now? It is around quarter past five. Yeah, so we just woke up. Yeah, <laughs> it's for like sure. It's like, yes, it's 5 p.m. <laughs> the internet is such a crazy place, the fact it that is. we can both be having this conversation. It is pretty cool. You guys are in the sunshine of L.A.? Uh, it's yeah, it's actually not bad. I mean, it's been kind of chilly, but it's nice. It's like okay. in like the, the low seventies right now, so okay. it's, it's not that bad. Um, okay, so there's so much that I want to talk about with you, and I, I think I, I just want to jump right in, and and I think we should give our listeners a little bit of history um, with you because you've been in the business for so long, and you've got so much amazing work behind you. Thank um, you. I've been in the business for forty years now. Yeah, that's amazing. And I really want to get into that stuff and, and, and uh, growing in the business. But before that, can we just do a brief overview? Like, uh, how did you get started as a cinematographer? That's a crazy story. You know, I'm educating as a, a fashion and, um, and commercial director of photography. No, just I'm educating as a fashion photographer, you know, and I was mm -hmm. doing that. For like four years, I went to the school and worked to, with some fashion people here in Copenhagen. And I was like, I finished that when I was 21, and I was so bored of that. I hate every second of that. And I want to be <laughs> a National Geographic photographer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're living in Denmark and, you know, those days, it was like National Geographic was the best thing on the planet. Yeah. Um, but and I tried to research into that, but I couldn't. It was impossible for me to bro break that ice. Uh, and then my big sister, you know, I don't know if, if you guys have a big sister, but big sisters is painful, but very good as well. <laughs> yeah. So she yep. said, I just saw advertising in the Danish newspaper from the Danish film school. They're looking for students for the um, cinematographer line, 
Hmm. I said, okay, and who cares about that? Because I don't want to be a cinematographer. I want to be a still photographer. I want to travel the world <laughs> and take pictures. And my big sister said, don't be like that. Just give it a try and see what's happening. Hmm. And I said, you know, I have no idea what movies is. I have never, it's not my call. I don't care. And she said, come on, do it. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I took some of my pictures and my brother-in-law and myself, we wrote an application. We sent it in. And then months later, I got a letter, you know, welcome to the interview for the Danish Film School, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I went out there. I was 21. I was like, you know, I don't care about these things. <laughs> super, super arrogant. Uh, so I came out. There's a, lot, a couple of professors for the art things. Uh, and we start to talk about films. And, you know, my approach to movies those days was, you know, I just like to see comedies. I want to go to the cinema and have fun. And that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And then... You know, we talked about movies. I, have to, I took some pictures that was actually okay. And I went back home and my sister said, how was it going? I said, it was really awful because I have no idea about movie making. <laughs> I said, okay, you tried. Okay. So a month later, I got another letter, you know, welcome to the Danish film school. You don't need to go to a test. You know, we just want to have you. Wow. And I was wow. like, what's going on here? <laughs> and then, of course, you know, we was three, we was three cinematographers on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, so the two other ones was ten years older than me, and those guys have been dreaming about making movies the whole life. But so it, the first half year, I have no idea what it was. You know, if maybe the guys that listen to us, you know, if you have to pan, you have to follow a guy walking on the streets or whatever. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that, of course, because I've never tried it in my whole life. I've never seen a film camera before. Wow. So the first half year of the school, I was like the black, black sheep, you know, it was like, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> but the school was fantastic. You know, there was like six directors and three cinematographers and three sound people and some editors. And it was like fantastic. You know, those wow. days the Danish film school was really, really good. So, you know, as a young guy, you know, coming into that student things about filmmaking, it was amazing. So that was my start. And then I was there for three years, four years, three years. And I came out in 1979, that's many years ago, 79. And I shot my first feature film right away. You know, I finished the school in June. I shot my first feature film in July. Oh, my God. And it's, I've been it, doing this since. Maybe a little bit boring. It's, cr- <laughs> it's crazy. It's it crazy how fast. That's the story. Wow. I uh, mean, it's so much different than it is today. Well, I guess I guess the I guess the industry wasn't as saturated. I mean, as many people that were trying to get into it back then, but the fact but what, that you- But the whole problem those days was, you know, all the television was run of the government. You know, there was no, you know, television series or stuff like that was not existing. If they did something, there was employed people from the Danish government broadcast television. So I would say the film business was super small. You know, they're making some feature films and some documentaries and that was it. It was, it was really tough those days to get into the business because the work was very, very slow. I was just good on lucky or whatever, but but I broke the ice right away. 
And of course, that was my luck because it, it is really difficult. Some of the guys, one of the guys from this my class, he never made a feature film. Hmm. Uh, because those days, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's easier now, but, you know, everybody can use this, make a more small movie, iPhone or whatever you want to do, if you want to do that. But mm-hmm. those days, you know, we shot on films all the time. And of course, that was, it was another world. I'm not yeah. saying it's good or bad, because I think the new world is fantastic. You can do whatever. And I think the worst things when I was starting, there were so many stupid rules about, you know, you cannot do that and you cannot do that and you have to stay on this side of the line and all that kind of stuff. And of course, we still use that a lot. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are jumping the lines because they think it works better or whatever, and nobody cares. But those days, if you jump the line, <laughs> people killed you. It's like, you know, the editors have so much power those days. And right now, I think the business have changed much, much better. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because it, it feels like the industry is has opened up a lot more. Even because I've, I've been doing this not nearly as long as you have. I've been doing this for about 19 years. And even in my period of time, um, the industry's opened up so much. And I think a lot of that has to do with the internet. A lot of that has to do with YouTube and and uh, people sharing, you know, people like yourself sharing their techniques and sharing their stuff. And it's it's gone from being sort of a, a very small film school sort of prestigious training session to you, you can literally learn about essentials through the internet now, which yes, is for sure, which is well, definitely I think the good part of film school those days, like you was you was trapped, you was practicing and you was practicing and you was learning a lot about history and you was mm. practicing again, you know, it's like we was we were shooting movies all the time. And of course that was fantastic. Mm. And when you're shooting on film in on a film school, you have to be very clever about what you're doing because you cannot afford, you know, the film stock was so expensive. Yeah, totally. Uh, so maybe that's, I don't know. It was, you really have to think about what you did. And of course you have to use your imagination much more those days, I think, because, you know, you couldn't see it on the monitor or whatever, you know, you just looked into the film cam and you have the idea what does it, you know, I don't know. It's just two different ways. I, I'm not saying something, something is good and bad. It's just another way to do it. Well, I mean, because you said that you started as a photographer. I also started as a photographer. And for me, that, when I started that's shooting, fun, isn't it? it's, it's great. It, it's great. I love it, man. I'm, it, it's, I'm a big fan of Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed, by the way. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, the thing I loved about shooting film, and, I, and my girlfriend's a fashion photographer, and she loves shooting film too, and she's from a younger generation. The thing that I really enjoy about it is that you, you have to be selective, and you're, you have to pre-edit, and you have to pre-choose your, your choices. With a lot of the new digital cameras that came out, like digital SLRs, and you hear photographers that are just, the shutter is just running. It's yeah. And they're just shooting thousands and thousands of shots. I hate having to sort through thousands of photographs. Of course. In post-production. I yeah. hate that. Yeah. It's, and so for me, I, I really enjoy, you seem closer to your subject material if you're being precious about what you're shooting. And I think that's what shooting on film does for me. You know for sure. I, mean? I agree about that. But you know, yeah. I don't think there's nothing that's right or wrong anymore. And that's what I like. You know, if it better works for people, they're making like a lot of setups and make the decisions in the editing room comparing to, you know, when I'm doing Shape of Water, for example, with Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. you know, the movie is more or less shot the way it's editing together because he's so 
precise about his editing. But when we are doing John Wick, we are cover ourselves much more because it's a kind of action, so you need a much more angles. That, and it's just two different ways to work. Yeah, no, I, that transition's great, by the way, because I am super excited. I am a huge Guillermo fan. I, I consider him to be one of the one of the <laughs> best directors of our generation at this period. Um, and he's such an amazing artist. So I have so many questions for you with that. And I I really love your work with uh, John Wick too. So oh, thanks. <laughs> Uh, let's get into, let's just jump in. Let's get into Guillermo. Like, how did you, you first met him on Mimic, right? You shot Mimic years ago. Yes, I was shooting, I shot a Danish movie called Nattevagten in Denmark here, together with a Danish director called Ole Bonedale. Mm -hmm. And then he should do a remake on that movie in Los Angeles uh, with Bob and Harvey Weinstein, you know, the famous guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um <laughs> And of course, those days, those guys were very, very powerful. Yeah. So after a while, they asked me to, I shot the Danish one, so they asked me to do the American one. And that was my first American movie because I, I have never really dreamed about going to the United States. I don't know why. But then I, I went over there and I liked it very much. Yeah. Um, so we shot Nightwatch in Los Angeles and Bob and Harvey likes the dailies and, a lot. And then... Uh, there was prepping uh, Mimic with Guillermo and they said to Guillermo, you should check his Danish cinematographer out. Um, so we met a couple of times, Guillermo and me, you know, and this was my first American movie. So of course I was super stressed out, you know, and I had my family uh, and I didn't want to go to meetings in the weekends because I want to play with my kids, you know, it was a lot of like, so in, in the beginning it was a little bit like, it was not a drag, but it was just like, Difficult to find time to to meet him. Yeah, yeah. So we met him. We met a couple of times for coffee on Saturday or whatever it was. And the first meeting was a little bit like, mm, and <laughs> and then actually Harvey, as Bob, whoever it was, said, you know, give it another go. And then we met again, and we was like clicking, you know, because we like the same way of making movies, you know, dark side of the of the movie making and moving the camera and a lot of contrast. So he asked me to do. Mimic, and that was like half a year later, whatever, in Toronto. Uh -huh. And of course, we talked a lot about how to the style of the movie. And both of us, Guillermo and me, was very much into deep shadows, powerful colors, and um, yeah, a dark movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so we start to do that, and it was like a fantastic. Uh, of course, it's many, many years ago, and Guillermo has a lot of problems with the Weinstein, Weinstein brothers because I think Weinstein wants to do like a scary movie, and Guillermo wants to make a, one of his like art movies. So there was a lot of, lot of discussions about that. Yeah, uh, I've, I've heard about that. I heard it was kind of a nightmare, right? Like it was, ended up. It was really tough for him, but you know, they ended up. He, he did a good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was afraid of getting fired every second day because it was a pretty dark movie. Uh, but Guillermo <laughs> likes that and I love that too and you know the Weinstein was like oh, are we not too dark or whatever no. but we, we came through it and it was fantastic um, yeah. and it was a pretty big movie those days um, and we shot on film and you know it's just like and I was operating a camera and we have Jill he was making a steady cam uh, and that's a steady he's, he's doing all our shows now together so we have been together for like 25 years or whatever. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. That's 
But yeah, yeah. so Guillermo and me after Mimic, we didn't, we split up. I don't remember exactly what's happening. Uh, we split up and we talked to each other a little bit on the, on the phone, with, but we never saw each other, for, I think, for 15 years. Wow. And then he called me one day and said, you have to come to Toronto because we have to scout in a movie called Crimson Peak. <laughs> uh, and I was shooting a big television show in Prague. And that was very desaturated. It was the same director, actually, that did um, Nightwatch, Ole Bonedale. Oh, no kidding. Uh, so we shot like for six or seven months in Prague. And then we have to shoot a couple of months in Copenhagen. And we have two weeks off. So those two weeks I was flying to Toronto and I met Guillermo for the first time for 15 years. It was like we have seen another for two days ago. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. Um, and he showed me some concept drawings for that movie. And I was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> uh, and the funny part, because that movie I did in Prague was very desaturated. You know, it was not black and white, but very, very little color. So yeah. Guillermo was like, let's do this very color movie, colorful movie. And I was like, yes, let's go for it. And then we went into this <laughs> very colorful palette. And we still love the same kind of lighting and moving the cameras. And, you know, it, it was just amazing. It was like coming home after 15 years. It was great, great. I, and he I, I, is a fantastic director. Yeah, Crimson Peak is is just a, a, a gorgeous and it's such a it's such a beautifully production design movie. It's such a the sets are just absolutely amazing. It must be amazing, such a yeah. it must be as a cinematographer. It must be such a joy to go and turn a camera on those sets. Those sets are just gorgeous, right? Oh, it's fantastic. But you know, half of that is is a big big lighting job. Before that, you know, it's it's just everything is built more or less. Everything is built in the studio, and there was like it was a big big thing. Uh, and it was fun, of course. It was fantastic. Uh, and because Guillermo is so precise and he's like, let's do it right. So it's not, of course, you're, you're busy, but you're not in a super hurry because he wants to do it right. And that is fantastic when you have a director that's able to put a schedule together where you can take a little bit of time to light the, the things correctly. No, oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, and and uh, when, um, <clears throat> so your your work has been incredibly colorful. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was before that, but since then it's been. I mean, between John Wick and then between that movie and then the sh the uh, Shape of Water is a really colorful film. Yeah, it was like, actually, um, it was coming from. I would say it was Mimic, and mm -hmm. then I slided away for some years, for many years, and because there was a period where everybody wants to do it desaturated and you know, yes, blah blah blah, and then. I did that show in Prague and I was so fed up, you know, I want to do a black and white movie, but I have never done that. I've actually, I've done one, a documentary for the Royal Danish Ballet in black and white, but that's another thing from many years ago. Mm -hmm. But when we start to prep uh, Crimson Peak, we just talked about, you know, we want to do very saturated, you know, strong colors, but still mm -hmm. very contrasty in lighting, you know, not like mm -hmm. dark, 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 but you, you know, single source lighting, the black have to be black. Um, so we did, of course, a lot of tests how to do that uh, and what kind of lenses do you want to use. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Master Primes mm -hmm. because I like these high contrast lenses where, you know, the black is really getting black and I don't have any surprises about the lenses. If I want to do something flares or whatever, I just do that. It's not 
oh, by the way, we have a window, so we got some flair. I'm, <laughs> I want to be as much in control as possible. And I think Master Primes is doing that really well. And there was a reason I used Panavision Primo lenses in the old days, because I did the same job when you shot on film. Uh-huh. But, you know, uh, so we shot some tests on, actually, on Crimson P. Do we want to go to film or do we, did we want to go digital? Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to go digital because we couldn't afford to go IMAX. Oh, and we didn't it. want to go 35. So we decided to go um, go digital. So Alexa, XT, I think it was, and then Master Primes. Wow. Uh, wow. But after that, I'm getting very colorful and I love it. It's, it's great. You know, if you see my Instagram, it's getting very, I, want, I like <laughs> black and white. Or a lot of colors, you know. It's, I don't like too much between. I think colorful is so powerful right now. It's amazing. Yeah, and why do you think, I mean, a lot of that, I think, has to do with not only the way the digital cameras are capturing information, but also the new lighting systems, correct? Like the new LED lighting systems and how you can really sort of dial in color and shape color. Is that a big effect on it for you? Yeah, I don't think it's just easier. I don't think it's a big effect because when we, when we did Crimson Peak, that's... You know, we just use, we didn't run everything, anything over demo board. And I don't think we have any LED lights or not too many LED lights on that movie. We have a lot of Kina flows, mm-hmm. but a lot of like 24Ks or. Yeah, cool. All that like, and I still like these heavy, big lights, but of course the LED system, I don't think it's, it's just easier. It's fi- It's not, it's just faster to find the right color. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like, you know, because on, for example, Shape of Water, we were stealing the lights. We didn't use, we didn't change the color because there's so many lights right now. And, you know, if you say, okay, I want to have a steel blue, mm-hmm. depends what light you're using, the steel blue is going to change. Totally. So if you are using, let's say, 3200 and you're gelling the light, you just know where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, we just, just before we get this Corona stuff over our head, we were shooting, uh, Guillermo's last movie called Nightmare Alley. Oh, uh, I can't wait. And of course we used, we used more LED light and we was like getting into everything was running over iPad. So, you know, <laughs> the demo board is, the demo board controller is next to me all the time. And of course that's so much easier yeah but yeah. it's and it's much more difficult because you can very easily get lost in translation there you know you have so many options yeah and yeah. we are not we try to do our dailies or i do or we do do our dailies as close to the final movie as possible when we are coming into the di of course we are changing a little bit but it's not we're not changing the look mm-hmm uh, it's not like all the colors are going to be as it is when you're shooting it. It's not like we are gaining a lot of colors in in the DI. We have, of course, we're working with the DI very carefully, but it's not like because Guillermo is spending so much time, or we're spending, or everybody's spending so much time to get the right colors for you know the sets, the costumes, and all that. So if you want to go into the DI and start to play around with the yellow, everything is going to change. Yeah. Right. Totally. So yeah, so that's the reason we are spending a lot of time to test the stuff, mm-hmm. and we are 
we're shooting as it's going to look like in the final movie. That's just the way we work. You know, some people like to do a lot of stuff in the DI, but I'm not a big fan of that. I want to do power windows and quest the blacks a little bit of stuff like that. But I'm not it, changing the color palette too much. Mm, it makes sense. It, I've learned, because I've done my past two movies, I've been working with my cinematographer that I really love. And he has he does kind of the similar thing where he makes sure that he dials it in as much as possible into the actual footage. Yeah. Um, because I think you mentioned it a little bit before. I think that there's something scary about having unlimited options. And I think that you can get lost in a, in a sea of unlimited options. And I, whenever I do a film, I like to sort of lay out the boundaries and sort yes. of put a fence around it and say, okay, here's the playground. Here's where we can play. Here are the rules. And then let's really massage what we have within that boundary. I think that without that, um, it's just absolutely scary. I mean, being a, a, um, a photographer myself, if I show up to a black studio, it's scary. It's yeah. scary to me because you can do anything. Do you feel the same way? No, for sure. But, you know, I'm not doing that for most of the time. You know, we are spending, <laughs> we are spending a lot of time with the production designer. And, you know, as I said before, Guillermo is doing a kind of a guideline for the colors, for the sets, or for mm -hmm. the movie. So, you know, everybody's in the same palette when we're starting and mm -hmm. of course we're spending a lot of time in prep to be sure the right colors is on the walls and that you know everything is matching together the costumes and production design and how we're going to shoot it because you, you know you can get into a super super nice set and just light it badly and it's going to look like shit excuse me yeah yeah and no, you can do great. the opposite you know you can have a pretty boring set and you can light it you know, light is so powerful, and that's a lot of people doesn't understand that. I think you know everything is about lighting. If you ask me, of course you have to have some beautiful clothes, and but you know if you lighting a fantastic set badly, it's just going to be bad. I completely uh, agree. I completely agree with you. I love to me, especially the thing. The big difference that I notice between doing photography and doing. Um, constant light is i love walking through light i actually yeah. like seeing light and constant light and being able to walk through it and experience that especially as a director where uh sometimes when you walk onto a set and you see it lit you at least i'm constantly trying to create this world that lives on the page so that i can be in it for a little while yeah for sure <laughs> i agree um, and I love that. I love that about lighting. I think that lighting can transform any space into a magical place. And and then if you have the years of experience that you have, if you have that time and you understand the power of how light and shadow can support a narrative, how they can support a story, yes. um, then it's then it's gold at that point. It's a lot of it fun. Is. It is. Know? And that's where it's so important to work together with directors and understand that because, you know, you – a lot of people are asking me what kind of stories do you want to work on? And I say for me, it's most important to work together with directors that have, I have respect for, and they have the same, you know, we want to do the same kind of movies, you know, because mm -hmm. if I'm thinking red or the director, he or she is thinking blue, then it's a, that's a long way home. So you just, and there's not, you just have to be sure about you doing the right, your same thing. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I think that's so important because I've you know I've made a couple of mistakes in my life and they made a lot of them, but 
you know, you just have to try to learn of them and just go not go into that thing again because it, it is if you have to discuss everything every day, it's just going to be it's 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 really it's difficult. Well, what's your process? What's your process of vetting of um, a director? Because you're essentially when you meet up with a director, it isn't just a interview for you; it's you interviewing them. So, like, what what is your process for that? You know, I think it's a relationships between people that's the most important you have to have respect if the director asks me to help him or help her he or she mm-hmm. that for me it's like helping and supporting the director and supporting the movie i, I cannot go in and say oh she or he wants to make that kind of movie but i'm going to make my i'm going to make my own and i think that's so important for you everything about film Film work is, is respect for people. You know, you have to respect the director because it's so easy to be a backseat driver. But I don't want to be a backseat driver. I want to be up front and try to drive the car together with a group. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's so important. And you know, it's it's relationships between people, and then you have to have a good relationship because it's you are going to be together with that person for like from everything for like three months to nine months, you know, and it, it is, you know, you have to go in with a lot of joy every morning and see this is going to be fantastic. So for me, it's like, if you're clicking, you you have the same kind of humor, you have to same the same way you want to tell the story, you have to paint with the light and write with the camera and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so that's for me. And I'm listening a lot to the director in the beginning. I'm listening to the director all the time, but I'm just saying, I'm not coming in, I'm reading the screenplay and have a hundred ideas. I have a lot of ideas when I've listened to the director's ideas because the director have, 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 have the movie in the head for like mm-hmm. years, you know, and I, I don't want to go in. I want to listen to that first and then, or oh, what about if we did that? And what about we did that? And then the director can say, yeah, why not? And let's try that. But, you know, I don't, I don't like, you know, I want to listen to what the directors are dreaming about and then take it from there. Smart. That's very and smart. And I think that's that's much better because, you know, you know, and directors are choosing me because they want to listen to me. It's not like, you know, they're not choosing me if they want to make like a flat lighting love story or whatever, you know, the, you know, <laughs> you know, people have seen what I've done before. I like the, the dark side of the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that's, that's, uh, it's relationship. I think everything is about respect and relationships. And I think that's very important about whole, the whole movie making, you know, you have to respect for everybody on the set. Okay, it is time to take a break and talk about sponsors. And I know that there's a lot of techie dudes listening to the show, a lot of really nerdy girls that are into uh, being a crew person, that are into potentially being a DIT or being in the camera department. Um, And uh, we've got some sponsors on today's show, which I think you'll find interesting. Uh, For those of you just joining us, you haven't heard me talk about my buddies over at Puget Systems. Now, Puget Systems, these guys build high-powered PCs to work for software that you use. It's pretty cool, right? Um, I have had a Puget System on set. We've actually had a full-size workstation. Uh, We had it on the set of uh, Who's There, the proof of concept shoot that we did. And my DIT was running his Puget System. 
uh, which works really well. Um, and he was able to not only go through the process of backing up footage and uh, processing footage, but he also was able to do some rough assemblies with full resolution footage on set. Think about it. If you guys are into this kind of thing, I've talked to the guys over at Puget. They know the systems to build. So head on over to PugetSystems.com. There you can build a system based upon the software that you're going to use. They will suggest hardware to you. But what is so special about Puget is that they want to talk to you about what it is that you're doing. So you can talk to one of their consultants um, and tell them about your career, tell them about your dreams, tell them about the kind of computer that you want to have built that actually works specifically for what you need. And these guys will help you do it. What I love about Puget is that they're not building and peddling hardware. They don't manufacture hardware. These guys go through the painstaking process of sorting through all the new hardware that comes out on the marketplace, uh, testing it, benchmark testing it with all these different software products that we use and coming up with a definitive list of what works the best. These guys stay up to date with all the software updates. Uh, it is a, such a great resource. Even if you're not looking to build a computer right now, or maybe you're trying to build your own computer, head on over to Puget Systems. These guys post newsletters. These guys stay on top of things. They talk about different codecs. They talk about what is working and what isn't working right now. Um, let me take a look and see what's going on here. Let's go to PugetSystems.com. If you click on publications and articles on their website, this is where they start talking about what they have been researching. Let's see, the latest one, January 13th. Unreal Engine 5 is becoming more real. Uh, let's see, what are they writing about here? Uh, the Matrix, oh, so they're talking about The Matrix Awakens. Uh, a bunch of the new Unreal 5 experiences. And these guys, of course, are putting together very specific Unreal Engine workstations. So if you're someone that wants to get into the Unreal stuff, these guys are doing the research on what hardware works best. I'm telling you, man, head on over to PugetSystems.com, check them out, go through their stuff. I think you're going to be very impressed with it. And then look at the prices for their workstations. They are cheaper than the larger companies that are out there, and you get a hell of a lot more for it. And you're not just paying for the unboxing experience. You're actually paying for the hardware that's going to make shit work better for you. Head on over to Puget Systems and check it out. Also supporting the show are our friends over at Vitafair. If you are a creator, a content creator that is finally looking to reach a larger audience, and more importantly, you're like, hey, I need to make some income on this stuff. So I need to start charging for some of my films or charging for my series. Um, but where do I post it? And there are a bunch of different places that charge you all sorts of different amounts. Some of these places will charge a percentage of what you are trying to charge your viewers. The thing I like about Vitafair is that they don't do that. They just uh, hit you up with a hosting charge, a basic fee, which is like under six bucks to post your stuff for, I think it's for up to a year. Don't quote me on that, but head on over to vitafair.com and check it out. Um, and I like it. It's all stripped down. There isn't any sort of bullshit. These guys are obviously not trying to be greedy, not trying to make money off of every click that you're getting. Um, and they're just straightforward about it. And I dig that. Uh, monetize creativity. They support creators' content without subscriptions. 
fair trade video. Head on over to vidafair.com. That is V-I-D-A-F-A-I-R.com. And check them out, man. I'm telling you, you guys are going to be impressed if that's what you're looking for right now. And that's what we try to do with our sponsors on this show. Uh, as you notice, they are all over the place for filmmakers, for directors. Uh, we're even expanding our sponsorships beyond that. We're trying to get into the barbecue market now and all this sort of stuff. I like to pick out these companies specifically because I like their shit and specifically because I think it speaks to you guys. Uh, let me know. Write to me on Instagram and be like, hey, we've always wanted to know about this company. Can you do a little research for us? We'll do it for you. Uh, let's see who else is on the show today. Oh, our friends over at Jambox. Now, you've heard how excited I've been about Jambox this season. I cannot express this enough. And everything about this read distills down to this one sentence. Jambox is the sponsor that if you sign up for it, if you go through their website, it will change your work today. And I can honestly say that. Why can I say it this way? Well, if for many of us, uh, we are content creators, like I do this podcast, I make movies, and one of the hardest things to find is music, licensed music, music that you're able to use legally, right? Music that when you put it on and put it up on a website, they won't take it down because you haven't dealt with the copyright restrictions. And then, okay, great. So now you're talking about stock music, unless you're friends with a musician or composer, or maybe you're paying a musician or composer to do specific stuff for you. Power to you. I do that on a bunch of my projects, but not every project has the money for that. Not every project is important enough to get another person involved at that level. What I like about Jambox, Jambox breaks all the rules for a music licensing website. I don't know if you guys have been through stock music websites, but they all suck. They really do. The music is mediocre. It isn't emotional. You feel like you're sorting through a musician's throwaway bin that he's like, yeah, maybe I'll make some money on this stuff. I'll throw it up on this website. I hate it. I've always hated it. And I've dreaded that point in a production where the producer hasn't put it together enough money for music and they sort of go, just find us some stock music website thing and see if you can just find a track on there. And then they start to be incredibly specific about their tracks. You know that fucking epic song in The Revenant? See if you can find that on the music licensing website. And you're like, come on. And then when if you're an editor for these things, you spend all this time putting together this beautiful footage, these great performances, and then you slap some bullshit track underneath it, and it just destroys it. What I found with Jambox, and this blew my mind, these guys have great, great tracks. It didn't make any sense to me. And I had the owner of Jambox on a prior episode this season. We talk about it. Uh, and I found out what really happens here. These guys have been music in the music licensing business for years. With their other company, they were actually doing music for Michael Bay's trailers. They understand the level of quality that is needed for higher and productions. And so they wanted to take that same level of detail and put it into a music licensing website. So what they do is they work specifically with artists. They will team up with an artist, a musician. 
they will pay that musician to essentially do an album specifically for Jambox. It's so fucking rad, man. And there are so many great musicians, great producers on this website that produce uh, material that I would listen to on Spotify. This is the type of material that you'd find running if you were listening to uh new retro wave fucking channel on Spotify. You'd be like, oh, cool. Who's this band? Oh, oh, talks. Oh, oh, weird. Okay. Right? It's awesome, man. Head on over to jambox.io now. Check it out. They have a bunch of different pricing options if you want to get into their subscription plans. And the subscription plans work really well if you're creating a lot of content. So like if you're doing podcasts and you want your music to be at par with what our music is, and I'm going to say this right now, I take pride in the music on our show. Uh, this music is contributed uh, mostly by amazing artists that are out there making fantastic stuff. And if you haven't listened to them, make sure you go check out my Artist Spotlight episodes where I talk about all the different artists that put together music for the show. The song that you're listening to under this ad is coming from Jambox. It blends right in, doesn't it? Right? It feels like it belongs. That's because it's from a real artist. It's from someone that spent the time to make this song specifically for Jambox. If you're a uh, uh, podcast creator, if you're a YouTube channel maker, head on over and sign up for their unlimited creator package. You can get 30-day free trial. It's only $9.99 a month. Um, and you get full access to all their music, unlimited downloads, stuff that you can use for your YouTube content, your social creations, personal student projects, web and streaming. It is a great deal for someone that is creating consistent content. If you're someone that is doing a lot of commercial work, maybe you have quite a few commercial clients that are coming back to you all the time and they're expecting quality shit. Sign up for their unlimited commercial account. Uh, you get a seven-day free trial with that, and it's $19.99 a month. And then you can use that music or those sound effects uh, for everything from the creator plan. Uh, you get full access to all sound effects and stems of the tracks, which is really great. And then you can use it for paid advertising, corporate business, weddings, life events. It's really great. And if you're just a student, they have a student package, which is the same thing, but for six bucks, which is amazing. And uh, if you don't want to subscribe, this is what I love about this website. Let's say that you have too many subscriptions going and you just want to get a quote for one track, they can do that too. Super easy, uh, a great catalog of stuff. And even if you aren't doing a project right now, but you're planning a project, go through their catalog, have it in your brain what music you can use for your project. Then you can start planning that. Really cool shit. Head on over to jambox.io and check it out. Last up for today's reads, our friends over at ETC. ETC makes amazing light units. These guys have been doing uh, the Source 4 profile lights, which are the spotlights. They've been doing them for concerts. They've been doing them uh, for film for quite some time now. Uh, I love those spotlights. I've used them on all our music videos. And now they've transitioned to doing these amazing LED units. Uh, they have their FOS slash 4 Fresnels and their panels that are fantastic. Let me do one of their basic reads here. A lot of us in the film industry has used the, have used the iconic Source 4 profiles on set. ETC, the maker of the Source 4, has been working hard in recent years to give us incredible new fixtures specifically to be used with cameras. I have my hands on their FOS 
slash four Fresnel, which if you've been listening to the show is equivalent to an 1800. So when we're talking about having to put a light outside the window, this unit works really well for that. Uh, one of the most eye-catching aspects, Jesus, Michael, of this line of fixtures is the color mix. Their Luster X8 array includes deep red emitters, which not only open more color mixing options than you'd get with a traditional four-color uh, four studio fixture, but it also leads to richer, more natural beams of light at any color point that you use. So they have figured out a way to make the color more richer with their settings on ETC. If you don't believe me, head on over to ETC, uh, connect.com backslash love the process. All of their fixtures are backed by 24 seven customer care support. Uh, check out their FOS4 Fresnel and their panel by visiting etcconnect.com backslash love the process. And while you're at it, head on over to inlovetheprocess.com and check out more information on our sponsors Check out all sorts of information on today's episode. And if you're new to the show and you're like, holy shit, there's almost 200 episodes of this thing. Yeah, that's right. It's how hard we work here. Um, I have them all sorted and categorized by uh, guest. So like, if you want to go listen to the directors, there's a director section. If you want to go listen to more crew members, there's a crew member section. It's funny. I've, I've, I've talked about this on the show quite a bit, um, but one thing that they didn't really teach me when I got into this business, and I know that a lot of folks that get into this business aren't taught it either, filmmaking is a social job. I mean, you are essentially trying to be empathetic and interact with as many strangers as possible. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that I went to film school with that were just very introverted, sort of the dark sort of artists. And it's like, you're going to hate this job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, it's a very social thing, but there's one, there's only one king. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, and that's a lot of people that's asking me, what are you going to do when you're coming into a big argue? And you say, no, first of all, I, Normally, I'm not coming into a big argument. We, you can discuss some stuff, but you know, you cannot mm -hmm. do something if the director doesn't like it. He or she is mm -hmm. just going to cut it out of the movie. Yeah, you know, you are not. <laughs> as a, and I think that's that's again relationships and respect because I'm not going to be in the editing room. You know, if the director doesn't like it, they're just going to cut it out or change it in post or whatever. You know, so you just. You have to be in the same, in the same boat. Yeah, totally. And totally, a, a lot, totally. you know, when I was a younger cinematographer, you know, I was fighting a lot for like, oh, let's make this picture. And the director said, I don't like that. You know, oh, let's try it. And then I never saw the picture again. You know, saw it when we were watching dailies, <laughs> and that was the end of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm not saying you know you, you have to discuss. It's not like you know you. You, you don't have a lot of opinions and a lot of, you know, you have to discuss the light and the angles all the time, but it's just like there's only one king. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's important to understand that. And there's something really fascinating about, because, okay, so your style is a style that I've always loved, which is, it, it sort of teeters on the edge of film noir and uh, it's very much shape with light and like high contrast stuff. And then uh, working with Guillermo, it's obvious that he has a great grasp and understanding of how 
the cinematic language works yes. visually, which I love. And I, I think that um, in our period right now, I think that there's uh, this balance between trying to be artful and trying to do these things that take time. Like you said, the fact that he was able to schedule that time for you for Crimson Peak, and then you're uh, battling the the need to put things out so much quicker and so much faster. And you and you look at these TV series and you look at this stuff where it's like, how the hell did you guys shoot enough for five movies in three months? You know, and and so are you finding that uh, film sets are being run a lot faster than they used to be, or is it is yeah. it any different for you? No, of course it's much faster. You know. I have not done so, you know, when we're doing, for example, John Week, we are doing a lot of setups every day because, mm -hmm. you know, when Keanu Reeves is on a go, you know, we just have to use that momentum, you know, so he's not sitting there for two hours or whatever. Yeah. But, but it, totally. it is, you know, John Week is always two cameras, you know, and, and, and uh, <sighs> it's, it's a very fast set, but with Guillermo, when we did Shape of Water, for example, mm -hmm. we were shooting everything chronological. So, you know, we were shooting your side, my side, your side, my side all the time. So we wow. were turning around all wow. the time. And it was not wow. only the not only the lighting, but there was like when we were in the studio, we have to take a wall off and put another wall on. So all this, the way he's designing designing the movie is like, you have to shoot chronological and it's wow. like, and of course that's time consuming and it's very, very difficult as a cinematographer to come back to the same lighting setup like five times in a day or six times or whatever. Yeah. So we did that, you know, it's like constant and turning around. It's not like when you're doing a normal movie, you're shooting against the windows or towards the windows in the morning and then turning around after lunch. Uh, Holy. Here we are turning around. Yeah. Every second setup. Uh, and that's you can see that if you see the movie again you can see the camera is like the way the shots are designed to each other that you can only do that if you know where you're coming from right away huh it's so interesting that uh, you must <laughs> you must really be great at continuity <laughs> well, you know I just I have a pretty consistent uh, what I like <laughs> no, of course, yeah. but you don't, you know, you're doing a lot of mistakes. I'm doing a lot of small mistakes all the time, but yeah. you don't see them because you're not coming, coming back to the exact same angle. Wow. And you see, wow. remember how many times you've seen a movie? Of course, you have to match the light as absolutely best as you can do. Mm -hmm. But think about how many movies we have been seeing with the sunshine in one direction and not sunshine in the other direction. And people are like, oh, nobody sees that. I'm not saying you should <laughs> yeah. not fight for it. Uh, yeah. But, you know, some... So we we are changing the light all the time and try to do it as consistent as possible. But, of course, you have us. If you're going in and see it very clearly, there's a, sm a lot of small mistakes. But that's life. It's, it's great. Yeah. And, it's, you know, 
I always say this. I love imperfections. As a director, I love imperfections. I actually like I'm very glass. happy about hearing that. <laughs> yeah, I love, I, I love distorted glass. I always say this too, because I, I was working with a cinematographer that wanted everything to be crisp and clean, and I'm like, you should just go for a ride with me in my car, because my windshield's dirty, and that's how I see the whole world. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> it's through like a dirty windshield. So for me, it doesn't need to be that pristine. And I think a lot of people forget about that, um, especially a lot of filmmakers on set forget about that, uh, that when you watch old movies and f movies that we loved growing up as kids and like the the dolly moves that are shaky and you just don't notice it. It adds to the energy of that film. Yeah. And then but see, I think, I think from my perspective, the advent of the high definition monitors on set and having producers and, and people sitting in video village and then talking and having all that time to, especially in the commercial world. Oh yeah. Where they're just, where they're like, Oh, that isn't matching this. Do you find uh, that the, the advent of uh, video village has made your life more difficult? No. You know, I'm working together right now with the directors that have a lot of very strong ideas, what we are going to do and not going to do. And, you know, we, we, we are doing the movies Guillermo and me and Chad and me exactly as we like. We and you know, nobody's is nobody's interfering with Guillermo or with Chad. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have to say, I'm a little bit. I like these clean windows in your car. <laughs> That's the reason I like Master Primes a lot, like Master Anamorphic. You know, I just like these very sharp and high contrasty images. Um, and I think the good part about the high definition monitors, you know, we don't have million monitors. You know, I have my own game, I have his, and we are sharing the same a lot of times. Um, mm -hmm. And as I said before, the look we have on the monitors on the set, that's exactly the looks the movie's going to look like later on. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, it's, it's one to one. We are not like, oh, let's fix that in post. Let's fix that in post. We're just going to do it as, as we like it. And we, of course, I've been on shows. Don't take me wrong. You know, I'm just lucky right now. But I've been on shows where I have producers like coming in and said, isn't that a little bit too red? Isn't that a little bit too blue? And I said, you know, I don't know. I think it looks fantastic because if I thought it should be more green, I would make it more green. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that wall should be red because that's the way we have choosing it. If you want to do it, blue we can do that but that's just another discussion it's not like and again with movie making you have so many choices so the reason i'm making this that said red or whatever is because the director and me have been agree about it should be red and then the producers come in and say isn't that too much and i said yeah i don't know i think it's fantastic that's the reason we made it yeah <laughs> it's not like oh by the way we could make it yellow or um and I'm just in a situation right now where I'm working together with directors that, you know, we can do more or less what we like and everybody seems to be happy about that. But yeah. I've, trust me, I've been there, you know. I'm not sitting here and being arrogant, old guy. I've just, I have been there. That is too dark and that is, you know, all these kind of discussions, you know. And as you said, especially on commercials, like I did a commercial for some years ago where we was – shooting something and you know everybody was agree about this should be much more bluish or whatever and then 
the contact from the clients coming said, you cannot do that because we just showed it should be much more neutral. And, but everybody was like, this is much nicer. But said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's too dangerous to say that to the client. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that, that's commercial. That's commercial. <laughs> that's money talks, but that's, uh, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But listen, I've been there with feature films as well, of course, you know, where you have big discussions about if it's too dark or you don't see, you know, you have female actors that think they're looking too old or, you know, whatever, you know, you just, it, you, again, what, it, what does a director likes? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then from a director standpoint, it's just, it's essentially until you get to that point that you're Guillermo, until you get to that point where you've had that success and you have that fan base, really, when you have that audience base that they're like, we love everything that this guy does and we love the way his movies look, so leave him alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have a fantastic, <laughs> you know, a fantastic um, taste. So, of course. Yeah, but I'm sure yeah, yeah. he have had his trouble. You know, when we did Mimic, we have a lot of discussions with the Weinstein brothers about if it was too dark or too not dark. or You know, not too, not, it was, everything was complaining about it was too dark. But yeah. um, it's, we try to stay strong there, and we, I think we did that. That's the best part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. The best part of the movie is how dark and contrasty it is, and the fact that he does creature stuff. And here's a credit to your work. I think that uh, oftentimes when you deal with uh, uh, creature effects, uh, they spend so much time designing these things and making them look absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. Uh, but I think the trick with good practical effects is just putting them on the screen just long enough and then lighting them so that you don't see them fully and choosing that light so that it works with the effects. And I, I, I think that helps bring what is normally latex and rubber to life is the way yeah, that they're you, lit. You can say the reason the fish man works so fantastic in Shape of Water was because he was made perfect. It was not yeah. like you have a latex guy coming in, you have a character coming in. So yeah. we didn't we didn't fight him too much in the shadows because he looked so fantastic. He, we were sliding him as he was a real guy. Wow! And I was wow. like, of course, they did a little bit of visual effects later on, you know, with with the blinking eyes and the fins and stuff like that. But the lighting was he was so fantastic made, and the color wow. was perfect. So you know, it was not a big deal to light that. Fishman, because he looks so amazing from the beginning. That's going to be so awesome. It's going to be such an amazing thing to when you finally see it done. Yeah, and, for sure. And he walks on set. That must have been so. Yeah, but so I think inspiring. that's the reason it works so well because Sally and him was actually. It looks like they was falling in love with each other because you could understand because he was yeah. so powerful. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's not like, oh, let's fix that in post, or let's fix that in post. And, you know, we we didn't do We We shot him as he looks like, and we lied him as he was the real person. It's so beautiful. That's That must have been one of those moments when you're shooting in cinematography for you where you're just like, this is going to be amazing when he walks in. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, for sure. It was. Yeah. That's so great. So let's talk a little bit about Chad and working on <clears throat> on um, the John Wick movies because that's going to be a completely different style of filmmaking. Because yep. uh, I mean, from the outside, and and I have never done action at that level before. 
I'm completely fascinated by it, and it it, it almost seems like it's it's like a dance movie, right? It because is everything's a dance, choreographed. But that's because he's so fantastic to choreograph. But the story about Chad was, I was in Copenhagen, and he called me and said, "Hi, Dan, I'm Chad." Da da da. Um, mm-hmm. I just saw the trailer for Crimson Peak. Uh, do you like to come to Los Angeles, to New York, fly to New York, and I want to have a meeting with you? Hmm. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Why not? Um, <laughs> and I haven't seen I haven't seen number one those days, so I just I find number one, watch it, and flew to Los Angeles, to New York, and he was prepping number two, but he didn't have mm-hmm. a cinematographer. Um, and then he said, I just saw. The trailer from Crimson Peak, and I want to have my movie looks like that. <laughs> I said, okay, great. Then you got the right guy here. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no, he said, I want to I want to do an action movie that looks like it was a split between action and a Bachelucci movie. I want to shoot it as wide as I can. I want to have it very colorful and very beautiful lighting. And of course, as a cinematographer, this was like fantastic. Let's um, sure. Let's try that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. I have never shot this kind of action as well. Um, and of course, I have to match a little bit to number one. Not like a big thing, but you know, I change the lenses. Uh, those guys shot with some. I think they shot with hawk lenses, and I want to go. Master Anamorphic, because again, I like these Master Primes. And Master mm-hmm. Primes, you know, they have made Master Anamorphic. Uh, the only problem we have with those lenses was they're so good and they're so clean, so that you're not getting this kind of anamorphic flare. Mm-hmm. So, what we did together with CNC New York, the rental house, yep. uh, we inside the Alexa, you have a kind of a filter holder where you mm. could put ND filters or whatever you want to put in there. And we const- made a filter with fishing lines. So we oh. put three fishing lines or six fishing lines in there. So when Smart. you have a highlight that's f- hitting the fishing line, you're getting a flare. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about that is you're still keeping the contrast without the f- outside the fishing line. So you have this like super high contrasted black or whatever you have it. But on, when the fishing line says you got this uh, highlights anamorphic flare. So cool. So that I was no really, really cool could... because you, yeah, you know, you cannot, if you've got some old lenses, you cannot control the flare. And I really don't like too much flare. I like to, as I yeah. said before, I like to control the flare. Right. So we did right, that together right, right. with CSC, and that was fantastic help. You know, it 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 um, it looks pretty cool, I think. But yeah, 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 totally. So I never would have guessed. I never would have guessed that you guys actually did that with fishing line. We did That's that. Such a smart it trick. It is pretty yeah, smart. Yeah. But that was like CSC to have that idea because we talked about in the old days. I was shooting a lot of feature films with a nylon stock behind the lens. We glue a nylon stock behind the lens. <laughs> uh, but it seems like it doesn't work digital. I don't know why. Uh, I tried to do that a couple of times. So I spoke to CSC and said, you know, I like to have this, that kind of idea, but I want, I don't want to have the lighting stock, the nylon stock effect because I was too like romantic. And then they said, yeah. well, let's try to put some fishing lines in there. So, you know, we did that together and there was, those guys were so fantastic. 
it's it's great. Those are old because I I remember doing a lot of those old track <coughs> techniques uh, back when I was doing photography and putting nylon there, and nylon sort of softens everything. And um, I I think it's fantastic that you guys are using such a high end camera, and you're using this high end detailed camera, and then you're just loading the filter tray with fishing line. <laughs> I think that's perfect. Yeah, it and it, it, that, that, it is pretty good. It it works fantastic. Yeah. When you see the movie again, you know you have these highlights, street lights, a car car headlights. And it works yeah, really yeah. well. Um, <laughs> and then we talked about, of course, colors. Uh, Chad and me, uh, a lot about, we try to make a color palette together with the production designer, Ke production designer Kevin. Um, mm -hmm. And we try to f do, this scene should be to the green side, or this should be more steel blue, or this should be more red. And so we try to make a color palette for the whole screenplay. Um, and of course, in the beginning, it was a little bit like a wake-up call for me because we did so many setups and we was working insane oh, long hours. You know, it was like 15, 16, 17 hours every day. Wow. Uh, and shooting in New York, um, it's fantastic. I love this city and poor guys that have this hard time right now. Um, yeah. But it's a difficult to shoot in New York because you have to be extremely prepared you cannot change anything you know when you're going tech, tech scouting mm -hmm. you said i want to have a lift on the corner on 42nd and 5th avenue or whatever mm -hmm. south so you cannot change that to north when you're coming it's like you they don't want to move around when you're there so you have to be super prepared mm. uh, and it's good to be prepared, but it's nice to have the options to uh, to change your opinion. But that's difficult in New York. Yeah, is that? And do you think that's just because of the permitting and yeah, all that it stuff? Is. Like you, yeah, you can yeah. only get a permit for that corner, not for the other one. It's like you cannot yeah. move it from the north side of the street to the south side of the street or whatever. It's like that's what I heard. So I try oh, to do that a lot, but I say no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's. Uh, <laughs> and of course that's I understand crazy. that's a big city and it's like chaos just to yeah. close the corner it's, it's insane yeah 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 I, I went to school in New York so I oh, love it man yeah. New, New York has got such a I always say that whenever you step off the bus or step off an airplane in New York City the ground is shaking like yeah. it just has this energy I love it too that, I think it's fantastic uh, and especially for the type of movies that you like to make, I mean, it's like film noir city. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the lighting and the contrast and the way the light travels through the buildings is so great. It is fantastic. Um, but it's funny how dark it is when you're coming mm -hmm. down to the side streets. You know, it's so dark. Yeah. And we was fighting, especially on John Wick number three, where we shot, you know, so many weeks in New York. We, we just realized, oh, if you're going down to like, 24th Street, you know, it's just pitch black. There's nothing, you know, it's just dark, dark, dark. Then you have to go to Chinatown, of course, or wherever we shot. But um, it's a very dark city when you see it, yeah. like, from a cinematographer point of view. Of course, when you are, like, where the neon signs are. Yeah. But otherwise, it's it's a very dark city. I... uh but I, the, one of the things that I loved about your John Wick stuff was the fact that you guys were lighting with very sort of neon, sort of very saturated colors in that city, which for some reason when I looked at it, I, I just thought that must have been really difficult. 
Because <laughs> usually New York, whenever you see New York filmed in movies, it's got a very sort of naturalistic vibe. You know what I mean? It just feels like you would cleanly shoot New York for some reason. And I, I don't know. Maybe I just process that as, no, well, it, just, it must be too complicated <laughs> to do it differently. You have to have a good imagination then. Now, what we did was, when we have to shoot number three, Chad have these fantastic ideas about the glass house and the horse mm -hmm. chase and all that. And of course, we were scouting for months. Uh, we was, I was there for like four or five months before we started shooting. I was a big, it was a big, big prep for me. Um, wow. But we just sat down one day and said, what can we do better Comparing to number two, but how can we do it more crazy, more powerful, more fantastic? So we said, okay, let's shoot everything in nighttime. Like everything is night. There's not one single daytime. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. we are going to shoot in rain. Everything is going to be rain, rain, rain. And of course, the production said, you guys are insane <laughs> uh, because it's so expensive and it's so time consuming to do rain towers and cranes and all that. Uh, because it, it's when you see the movies raining, the only sequence is not raining is the horse chase, horse chase because the horse cannot run. I was afraid of the horse when it's getting too slippery because he was getting wet. Oh, right, right, right. But that's oh, the only sequence that's not uh, raining, and otherwise it's raining all the time. That must be so. I've never worked with rain towers before just because of how expensive <laughs> it, it seems yeah, to be. No, it is. It, you know, it's a big deal about rain showers, uh, but it's, it's, uh, and you have to light the rain. If you don't light the rain, you don't see it. Yeah. 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 So that's the reason, you know, rain showers or big cranes with spinners on, and then you have to backlight the rain because otherwise it's just going to be nothing. Right. Uh, right and right. I think that's one of the tricks to do. I've done a lot of rain in my life, but you have to backlight it all the time because otherwise you're not going to see it in the nighttime. Yeah, and I, 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 like, I actually have this old book on uh, visual, like, cinematography, like, practical cinematography effects, and it's, like, an old technical book, which I really love, and every once in a while, I'll pick it up, and I'll go through it and read about stuff, and one of the things I was reading about was rain towers and how that stuff works, and it didn't occur to me that they actually make different nozzles for different shapes of rain, so you can actually change how thick the rain yeah, is, how big can, the rain you can is. you can use the pressure, you know, especially in new days when you have spinners. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a big cross up there and a big construction crane and you have to hang it down and then depends how much pressure you have, how big drops are going to be. That's so um, cool. yeah. And we did that, of course. We, you know, shape of water was rain as well. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I've done that a lot. And it is, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic and it looks amazing, but it's just a drag to do it because it's like wet and it's cold and it's like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the look of that is, is fantastic. And I think you can see that. And I think the rain is doing so big impact on the story on John Wick number three. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Because, and then he's coming to the desk and that's another whole, uh, totally other thing. But I think so New York, New York, and rain is is fantastic. I'm very pleased about the look in that movie. Oh, it's amazing. It's fantastic. You should be. Yeah, that movie's okay. gorgeous. Yeah, thanks. It's gorgeous. And the thing that's so cool about the John Wick movies, and I think the thing that sticks out to me the most, is that most of the time when you watch action movies, especially action movies with that kind of choreography, 
um, you just expect them to be lighting it pretty flat because it just seems like they're, you know, going to be shooting in all different directions. And, and for the John Wick movies, it just feels incredibly sculpted. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, but we, you know, we're shooting. We're shooting with two cameras all the time, but you're thinking about the angle for the light, and then we're turning around, of course. And, and that's a mm-hmm. big thing. You know, that's because Chad is so fantastic to make these action sequences. You know, he, he just knows exactly how to do, the, to, to do that. And, of course, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's his whole life to be an action guy. Yeah, yeah. And from your perspective, when you uh, when you start shooting with multiple cameras, do you feel do you feel like uh, it becomes more complicated for lighting? And do you feel like one of the cameras is always sacrificing because you can't make them both perfect, or do you figure out a way to do both of them? We're perfectly? doing. Yeah, we try to do. You know. A camera is going to be like, I'm, that's the funny thing because I don't think there's any A and B camera in the real world because you never know what's, what setup you're going to use because you're not going mm-hmm. to be in the editing room. Yeah. So you have to try to do both of them as great as you can. And what we're doing, we're a lot of times, we, you know, we have like three quarter profile shots for the mm-hmm. long lens on the shadow side of the lighting. Um, and I think that works pretty well. Um, we are not doing like a tight and a close at the same time because I don't think you can do that. You have to, you have to change the light for the close up. You cannot be, you cannot be on a 28 and 125 or 35 in the same time right. because then the light is not good. You can do that if you're in profile because then it's going to be it sliding. Yeah, right. But right, you cannot right, right. do like side by side. I don't think I don't think you can do that because then the light on the close up is going to be n- not so nice, and you have to take the lights too far away for the for the twenty eight millimeter. So I think it yeah. works much better if you have like twenty eight because we use that. That's the widest lens uh, the mass dynamorphic is coming in. That's a twenty eight. So mm-hmm. we we use that a lot. That was our main lens. And then a lot of times we have 100 or 135 or whatever it was for the profile shot going down to hands and stuff like that to, to have some cutaways. And I think that that works pretty well. That's smart, but man. I, I, because, I, yeah, I don't like to be side by side. I don't think it works so well. And that's, that's, that's sort of the general notion. I think that when, at least when you're talking to producers and they're like, get multiple cameras in here because they just want to save time and it's like to spray this, especially if you're doing an action sequence, who the hell knows what's going to happen. So spray this and and, and make sure it happens. But that's smart being, because then at that point, both cameras are their own thing. So you're never trying to match the exact look between them. For sure. So we do a profile, we do a three quarter or whatever, but but still, you know, if the light is coming from the left, the camera is going to be the right. So we we still have some shadows on the, on the close-ups. Mm-hmm. And if we want to go straight in, we're just going in, take one of the cameras closer and so, so we can change the light a little bit, make it nicer for the close-ups. So when you're, okay, so you guys are shooting that primarily with, what did you say? It was like a 24 millimeter, like a super wide. Yeah. Um, does that mean that you're backing out? So uh, you must be using much bigger light units if you're backing out everything 
yes. further away. So it's just depends on the, the shot. scene. You know, otherwise we're going to use some top light fluorescence or whatever. It depends on the scenes, but of course we have to back it out uh, yeah. to do it as wide as possible. But that's again that's something Chad really likes, and I think that's very clever because Keanu is so good to do his own stunts. So you know he does most of the stuff himself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you want to see him in a full shot. You know, want to, you want to see him when he's doing his stuff. And that's the reason we are not cutting so much. The chat is not cutting so much because it's it's great to let it play. Because it's not like you want to hide something. You want to show the scene. But of course, the light has to come further away. Uh, and then we are doing it. For the close-ups, we are changing the light. We're changing the light all the time. It's not like we're yeah. just changing a lens and jumping in. Then we are changing the light as well, you know, taking a smaller freestyle or whatever in and double diffuse it uh, just to make it nicer. Right, right, right. So then when you, because a lot of the people listening to the show are younger, and so they're just sort of understanding this stuff. And I know from personal experience, when we do smaller independent films, you really can't afford, at least back in when I was doing it prior to all the LED stuff, you start dealing with those larger units, you start dealing with a generator, you start dealing with people that have to run a generator, and oh, those yeah. costs start to increase. Yeah. Um, but I'm always fascinated. My first set that I was ever on where you know they had you know 5Ks coming through windows and stuff, I was like, oh my God, this must have taken forever to set up. Um, and so when you're dealing with that perspective, you essentially are lighting for the wide first, yes. correct? Yeah. And then you have, so you say that you go in for the close-ups and you do your change-ups and the close-ups, you have like a smaller kit that you're using to augment what that larger light setup is doing? Yes. Essentially? I do that, you know. I'm always, let's say we're on location or whatever, we always try try to light through the windows, even if it's nighttime. I just prefer 24 case far away with steel blue on for example Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then we are coming in for whatever close-ups we cut the big lights away and just go in with the smaller softer lights but you still Mm -hmm. have to because those especially on John Wick you have to you cannot spend a lot of time to change the lighting for the close-ups because the whole action sequence is like up and running so you, you have to be doing this pretty fast and you know it's not a it's not a, it's not time consuming you just have to have a kind of a plan what you want to do um so we i do that a lot i change the lights for the close-ups all the time mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and of course especially with the females you just want to make them as gorgeous looking as possible sure um, sure sure but again you know we are very much you know it, it, John Wick is, is an, it's not a bright movie. It's a pretty dark movie, but it works so well. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, you have to, it's edge sliding, you know, you, you, um, yeah. Three quarter lighting, single sources. I'm not, I'm more or less never using fill light. I'm just taking the key mm-hmm. light around if I need to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm shooting on the same, same T stops all the time on all my movies. If I can do that, it's going to be, between two eight and four, like what I'm calling three five, a split two eight four, <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I just feel it works really well with the master primes. And a lot of people start to shoot wide open, and it's you know people can do whatever they want to do. But you know it's just easier for me to control the light if I'm a little bit stopped down. 
Sure. Uh, and then the black is going to be much rich, much more rich, uh, rich. Um, I, I mean, it, it must help a little bit with. Well, I mean, you're still dealing with focus at that, at, at like a three five, and, and especially in an action movie that. I, it makes sense why you're using those lenses where everything's super sharp because yeah. you must. But you know, focus fo pull, your focus puller must be going crazy. You no, know, they're so good. All you know, the focus pullers we work with are just fantastic. You know, I have no, you know, it's the worst job on the planet. That's a focus puller because <laughs> yeah. when you do it right, nobody sees you. As soon as you're doing a little bit mistake, out of focus, what's going on? You know, and it's <laughs> it's so unfair. <laughs> but those guys are the best. They're fantastic. And I will not uh, change for anything in the world because, yeah, again, out of focus. And when it's in focus, nobody even thinks they are there. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. But so out of focus is very, very little, of course. But they have a, um, that's a tough job for those guys. And so uh question about you working uh, with your crews, because – uh, a lot of people forget that being a cinematographer isn't just showing up going, I want to make pretty pictures today. It's also being the leader of a whole team of people on your side. Yes. Um, have you, so do you work with the same gaffers all the time? Do no. you work with the same? I'm changing. The, on John week two and three, I work with the same crew, Bill and Charlie in New York. Um, mm -hmm. And, that was more or less the same crew in Toronto when we were doing Shape of Water and now we're doing the, the new one, um, Nightmare Alley. We're changing the crew a little bit, but I'm not taking the same guys around the world. Uh, I'm it. using new people uh, if I'm coming to a new city. I know a lot of people, you know, that cannot breathe if they don't have the same gaffer or whatever, but I'm a little bit old-fashioned. I, You know, I, I like... I know exactly how I want the movie to look, and of course, I need all, I need all the help and all the support from the crew. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I have a pretty strong idea where where we are going, and of course, you know, I'm talking to the, to my gaffer and my key grip about lighting all the time. Uh, but I'm a little bit like pain in the neck now, and then put the light there, not there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but they're yeah, super yeah. they're super professional people and of course they're supporting me all the time but i'm not traveling around with the same group of people okay uh, interesting i yeah i don't know it's just the way it works for me that's great uh, yeah. and i think there's so many good people around the world you know so and it's nice to m meet new people um mm -hmm. so yeah, it works. It works fantastic for me. I'm very happy about that. So, um, do you? So, you've been in the business now for since the since the eighties. So, you started what? Nineteen seventy nine is when you said your 79, first. Seventy nine. That was my first feature. That's some years ago. That's some years ago. Um, do you? Uh, I guess the question that I would have is, what do you think the difference is now? As far as yours, because you, here's the book, here's, a, let me start this again. Uh, the thing I love about our business is that it seems like with age, things get better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it seems like the longer you're around, if you could stick it out and the more experience you have, the better your chances are with doing things. And it's such a strange thing because generally in other industries, you start crossing 50 and people are like, okay, so this is an old guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's and, the, that's the way that's the way it works in Denmark, for example. 
Yeah. There's no, there's maybe one or two guys that's older here. It's the whole, it's a very, very young, um, very young business people. Is that the right word? You know, very young crew. Everybody's very young. (coughs) And it's, I think it's much, what you're saying is much more right in the United States. Yeah. Right. But here it's like, if you're like 55, you're fucking dead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't get that, but it's just the way it works. I, I have no idea. There's very few older people here in the business, in the technical. There's some directors, but all the cinematographers, all the gaffers, you know, it, they're very young people. Very strange. Yeah, it, it I had no idea. Bit, no, it's a little bit strange, but that's it, it is the way it is. Um, well, well, knowing that, so you have all this, um, you have a plethora of experience. I mean, one of the reasons I'd work with you is just knowing that you just have the time in. So knowing that you've spent so much time, like hundreds of hours on sets. And so when problems, thousands. So when problems arise, you can have a point of reference where it's like, I've seen this before and this makes sense. And then that makes sense. Um, Do you find, uh, and I think I've seen this, I've talked to other cinematographers in this business where sometimes if a, a younger director is working with an older cinematographer, um, they might feel a, a little bit threatened by it. There's this sort of like, this guy's got more experience than me. Do you find that you have trouble working with younger directors or, no. or is it? No. Okay. Uh, depends on the directors, of course, but no, I think, uh, both Chad and Guillermo are kids comparing to me, you know, that's young kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but, you know, it's again, as I talked about before, it's, it has nothing to do with age. It's have all, everything has to do with respect. It's like yeah. you have, if a person is asking you to help, what is help? Is the help is supporting. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think a lot of people, as you said, is afraid of older technicians, cinematographers, because some of them can be like backseat drivers. But who wants to be a backseat driver? You want to help to make a movie. You want to be in there to do the stuff together with it. You want to be there. Yeah. And, and of course, there's a lot of stories about you cannot do that. As I said earlier, you know, you cannot do that and you cannot do that. But I think that's changed a little bit. Um, yeah. But I think in Denmark, you have much more to do. You know, you're going out on a bar with a crew because, you know, I don't want to get out in the bar and after 15 hours, I want to go home to my apartment <laughs> or to, to get a little bit of rest before the next day. But I think have something to do with that because I don't get it otherwise. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, Denmark is maybe a little bit weird right now because the industry is very low budget. And of course, you cannot have, if you said, oh, let's do everything handheld. And I said, why do it handheld? Because it's not a handheld story. And because mm-hmm. it's faster to do it handheld. Yeah. But I think maybe if you want to do it handheld, there must be another reason. Yeah, uh, and of course, that's something to do with time and money, and especially as you asked about before, a lot of productions are getting into very, very short shooting periods. You know, in Denmark, you're shooting a movie in like twenty-five days. 
Yeah. Uh, and of course, you cannot spend a lot of time to light it and make a lot of setups. But again, I think the storytelling has changed a little bit because it's going to be we are walking away from the for the for the MTV look. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can see, for example, a movie like The Lighthouse. Remember that? Yep. Great movie. Great movie. It's a fantastic job. You know, that it's a pretty, it's not a, I don't think it's a low budget, but it's like a smaller budget. Sure. Uh, yeah. That yeah. was the same as Shape of Water. You know, that was a $19.5 million. It's not like a huge amount of money. But you just have to be clever about how, you use your, how you're using your money. And I think that's have something to do with the, with your experience as well. Totally. Uh, well, and of it, course, it's in Denmark right now. It's, it, it's, those guys are fighting a lot because the budgets are getting very low. And it's everything yeah. is about producers coming in and saying, let's do it faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, well, that's uh, when you're working together with Guillermo or Chad or those guys that just want to do it as good as possible. You know, I'm spoiled, of course, because it's like, <laughs> it's heaven to work together with those guys. It's like, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I, it must be. And, you know, that's the goal. I mean, that's my dream to, as a director is to finally get to that point where I'm able to, to sort of control my sets uh, from the, from the perspective of, of visual storytelling. And I think that um, that's usually a, a difficult argument because most of the time when I'm dealing with producers or executives, um, a lot of people assume whenever you think of like a movie exec, you think of the old guy, you think of like the Harvey Weinsteins, you think of the old guy with a cigar hanging out of his mouth, <laughs> and, you know what I mean? And most of the time they're young, they're very young people and junior execs, they're, they're, they're new and they're coming up. And there's been this whole, I would say over the past 10 years, um, sort of the manufacturers have kind of controlled our business to a certain extent. So like the big argument over film versus digital and the argument over the new LED units and then the edit systems and all this stuff. And I think they're hit a point where the producers and the execs started to dip their hands into the technical world. And that became sort of the forefront of how you were shooting a movie. Like, are you shooting it digitally? Are you shooting it film? Like, how are you doing these different, uh, how, they're basically uh, spouting out lines that they were reading from the trades. Um, and I think there has hit this point. I think a lot of YouTube has done it too, where the YouTube videos and the tutorial videos are just rehashing a lot of the same basic techniques. And I think there's been a distancing with a younger uh, generation of filmmakers that are coming up from the the origins of the language of cinema and the 100 plus years of what it means to shoot with a 85 millimeter lens and so you'll have these younger filmmakers that are like I want to shoot my whole movie with the 50 millimeter and I, I'm like why it's like you're picking one brush from a whole palette of brushes that you could be using for this and and when you make that statement on them saying I want to shoot this whole mo- movie handheld that's just a technique that you can specifically use that means something. Yeah, it sure. should mean something to the story. Of course. But, you know, I'm just being lucky because the last couple of movies I've been doing is like everybody wants to do a fantastic movie. You know, the producers, the director, you know, everybody's in the same boat. So you don't have mm-hmm. this like, of course, you're discussing about money. It's always an issue, of course. It doesn't matter sure. how many money you have. But, 
I'm just being lucky because everybody wants to do it as good as you can. Um, but I've, as I said before, you know, trust me, I've been on those shows where you know the producers coming and said, you know, why are we not making everything blue when it's red or whatever. But it's <laughs> it's you know again, it's coming from the director. You know, the director is as long as the director he or she can control the movie, it's it's going to be a dream for everybody. To, and I guess my point is that I think a lot of the younger directors that are starting out are looking, are 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 digging deeper because they're not going to tr to the traditional film school. They're not being trained. It's not as sexy to pick up an old book and read about how the old techniques were as opposed to like watching a YouTube video and going, wow, that brand new light is really great. Um, and so I think the the power of cinematographers like yourself is that educating folks on why you choose things and what the language means to you and visually why you're choosing these aspects can re-inspire that, that love of the visual language of cinema, I think is ultimately what it comes down to. I'm sure you're right, for sure. You know, and I, I, that's why I'm so happy to talk with you today. I mean, we're sort of running out of time and oh, I, yeah, I have sure. to wrap this up. All right. I, I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you today about this stuff because I love... Uh, I love just getting a glimpse. I I would just absolutely adore seeing how you work. I, I just think that there's such a, a powerful thing with experience in our industry. And I love, love, love to see how, you know, 40 plus years of experience uh, come to play now. I think that's such a really wonderful thing. Oh, fantastic. Um, Thank you very much. But you still, it's just, you know, it's the same when you're running into trouble, oh, holy shit, it's never going to be. You just, you know, I always have my doubts, and I think that's a very powerful thing. You know, I'm, I want to push myself together with directs all the time. Let's try to do it. Like, oh, we did that last time. I'm never using that. You know, we want to do something new. We want to play around with the image. We want to play around with the storytelling. And I think that's the whole thinking about movie making as I start to say before in the old days there were so many rules you could not do that and and everything is much more free now and that's and that's a fantastic especially for young filmmakers because they're the book is open mm -hmm. and you just have mm -hmm. to maybe make up your mind what you want to do as a young filmmaker because there's no there's no right or wrong anymore or it's very little right or wrong Mm. It's just about taste. But again, as a younger, uh, as an older cinematographer, you know, I'm trying to to push myself every day because I think that's a challenge. That's such a great thing. All right. Well, All right. We're, we're, we're sort of hitting this point, and I have one last question. I usually ask this question of all my guests, okay. um, and it's, it's a bit of I'm advice. nervous now. <laughs> don't worry about it i'm not asking for your social security number right, it's fine okay. uh, <laughs> um what i would ask you is uh now knowing what it is that you know after all your years of experience and if you could get into a time machine and you can go back to the first day that you were on set as a young cinematographer what advice would you give to yourself i would say again support the movie, support the director, and support the actors, because it's so easy to be like, 
a backseat driver. No one using. I, I just think it's so, you know, you have to be open. You have to support the people that are around you because I think directors, the director is the best and the worst job on the planet. And, you know, <laughs> you have to be open for that process and help support the movie and the director. I think that's a, the best way to say it. That was a fun episode. That was a good one. I love that stuff. I love being in the room. Well, at least, you know, being in the internet room because of COVID. I'd love to be in the room with Dan. Uh, I love hanging out with somebody who knows so much more than I do about cinema. It's one of the best parts of the show is that I can just sit there and ask those hard questions that I would have when I watch the trailer or if I watch a movie. Um, the show really is starting to give me access uh, to those folks. And then by giving me access, it's giving you access to them. So if there's someone that you want on the show, you know, send me some notes. You know, do it on Instagram at Mike Petchy or at In Love With The Process Pod. Send me some suggestions. Are there some questions that you had? Did you just see the trailer for... The new Christopher Nolan movie. Do you have a specific question? Are you watching uh, an episode of Marvelous Miss Maisel and wondering how the sets are designed? Right? Send me those questions. And if I agree with them, or if I think it'll be a cool guest, we'll do the hard work and we'll try to get them. All right? Um, and I just want to say, you guys, I love you guys for listening to the show. This is a labor of love for us. I mean, we're not really making cash on this. Uh, our sponsors that we have on the show are people that we love and respect and the equipment that we use. And uh, we take that money and uh, help the show go, you know, stay up and float. Uh, if you want to support us in this horrible COVID time that we're in, I would never ask you to reach in your own wallet. Um, but the easiest way to support us is by signing up for our Audible free trial. You go to audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. The link is below. Go to that, sign up, 30-day free trial if you haven't done so already. Um, you'll get a free audiobook. You'll get access to the website for 30 days. You'll get access to all the great content. Um, listen to the stuff. You're going to get hooked. You're going to be on it for a while. But if turns out you can't afford it, you got to cancel before those 30 days are up, it won't cost you a dime, and we still get paid. So it is the perfect way to donate to the show. And I appreciate those donations because uh, it helps us stay afloat, helps me support, and um, keeps us going. A lot of cool stuff on the horizon. A lot of great new guests on the horizon. Um, and I'm fingers are crossed right now with one of the movies. I fucking hope that happens, man. I really do. If this thing rolls, the show changes. You know what I mean? Be a whole different type of show if one of these movies kicks. So, fingers fucking crossed across the board, everybody. Stay with me. Stay excited. Stay inspired. Um, and stay tuned. I think we'll do another COVID episode. I don't. I don't know. I shouldn't say that because maybe we're gonna all be released by the time this episode comes out. I doubt it. But we're here for you, and we'll try to be here with that stuff as well. So, love you guys. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next Tuesday.